All right. Welcome back to the Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast. We are here with David. We've got a couple guests we're going to get to here in a little bit. How are you doing, David? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I think it's been about, a, what, a week, two weeks, something like that. Uh, a week busy. and a half or something? Something like that. We've been busy all day uh, setting up a course of fire. Yeah, it's been really, really good. Uh, the Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast email is coming in handy. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit, too. We're getting some action on that. You all know that. It's R-O-A-P at RiflesOnly.com with any questions that you have. Uh, send them to us. We'll talk about them here on the podcast. Uh, what I want to do initially right off the bat, you got rid of that freaking music yet? Thank you. <laughs> all right. I want to come through the calendar real quick just to kind of give you guys some reminders of what we got going on. April 25th, what's coming up next, next Sunday, we're doing the 22 match here. Uh, got a special uh, little surprise at the end of that match we'll talk about here in a little bit. Um, in May, I think we got a club match here in Texas on the 2nd, 3rd through the 7th. There's a 1 and 2 combination combination course here in Texas, 10 through the 12th uh, rimfire course, 3-day. Then also going on Rifles Only New Hampshire, 11 through the 13th. That's of May. That's a 3-day in New Hampshire. And also the 25th through the 27th, Rifles Only New Hampshire, Precision Rifle 1 course. Uh, June, heading up to Colorado, 7th through 10th, high angle, uh, rimfire class from the 12th through the 13th. This is in June, 17th through the 19th is Battle of Coyote. Uh, if you have not heard about Battle of Coyote, go to the Rifles Only website and get that figured out. It's a train up for Assassin's Way. Uh, it's just going to be a little bit of marksmanship, a little bit of land nav, a little bit of range estimation, target detection, Kim's game, situational awareness, three-day deal, uh, 750 to get in. I think first prize is 4000 on that one. After that, on the 21st through the 24th is a field craft course, four days in Colorado, and then another rimfire course uh, in the 26th through the 27th. July, here on my calendar, says it is too hot to do anything, so we're not doing anything in July. August, uh, Minnesota, rimfire class, 25th through the 26th. Getting back down here in September, uh, 3rd through 4th, PR1 two-day here, uh, 11th through the 12th, rimfire school, uh, 13 through 17, one and two combination course. These are all Texas courses. On the 18th, alternate position clinic. 19th, moving target clinic. 26th is a club match. October, going back into that one, uh, October 2 through, two through 3 is going to be rimfire school. And then we have helicopter assault from the 6th through the 9th. Y'all might want to look into that. Uh, it's going to be carbines and precision rifles on a helicopter platform. We had a real good time doing the last one or the last four of them or whatever. Anyway, then hitting it back up again in October 18th to the 22nd, uh, one and two combo course here in Texas. I'll leave, uh, got some more classes, two-day classes down here in November, 6th through the 7th, 13th through 14th. Those are birth, both PR1s. On the 20th of November is the Voodoo Vampire Rimfire Challenge. So that one's going to be at night. Uh, you will not need night vision. I'm going to light this place up like the sun. Then uh, another combination course at the, or another Rimfire Academy, 17th through the 28th. And this is November. And then 29 through December 3rd is a one and two combo course. Damn, that was a mouthful, and I'm glad it's over. It, I, what happened? Yeah. Like, I haven't listened to any of that. Uh, it was just all the classes we got. Quick question, if, in case, because I know people are going to ask. Your field craft course, uh -huh. what are you teaching? Uh, exactly what you learn in Assassin's Way. We're going to be tested on in Assassin's Way and Battle of the Coyote. Marksmanship, range estimation, target detection, Kim's games, situational awareness, field craft. All that stuff. Awesome. And I didn't say land nav. We're going to do land nav, too. Oh, yeah. land. I think that's the one everybody's I think that's the one everybody's Most, most people are. Like. I think that's what they're afraid of. They say, here's a map and a compass and a protractor and go get me a sandwich. Can they bring a cart? <laughs> uh, yeah, but if they start with it, they got to finish with it. I don't know. They want to pull a cart through <laughs> some of the areas we're going to be walking through on the land nav. So... <laughs> 
Uh, what else we got? Um, I guess a couple things I'll go over just because we got that uh, match coming up on the 25th. I'm going to rattle off a couple sponsors here. Obviously, Voodoo Gunworks. Check those guys out. Uh, Zero Compromise Optics. Uh, one thing we have sitting over on a table right over beside us, we have a brand new Leopold Optics to go on rifles for our academy. Thank you, Leopold. Uh, what else we got? They we did got optics and rings, too. And rings. They yeah, sent us rings. They sent us rings. Right. And then, of course, Magpul's doing the stocks. Um, and then uh, I think Thunder Beast is doing the bipods. Uh, we have uh, guys check out uh, on Facebook, or not Facebook, uh, Instagram, one of those. Instagram, yeah. uh, Grind Ops Coffee. It's run by a uh, an Ellie owned down in the valley. He's going to be sending some coffee up here. We'll be able to drink some Grind Ops Coffee, whatever. I like but, coffee. Yeah, I uh, think. Well, like do coffee. so he's going to send up some stuff. He's going to donate some things. Uh, What'd you end up with that watch company? Yeah, so I just got off the phone with. Uh, it's called Wind Windfield Watch. W i n f i e l d Windfieldwatch dot com. Uh, apparently, they do some fairly uh, affordable watches. They're pretty classic looking. They're in the three hundred and fifty dollar range. Uh, I guess they. He was telling me they're kind of popular with the. The guys over on the other side, the three gun, the pistol, like Chuck Yeager, stuff like that. Yep. Uh, so he's going to be sending, I don't know uh, if we're going to have any for this weekend's match, but he's going to be sending a few watches out here. Uh, we'll definitely for, have them at the Vampire Challenge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they'll definitely be there. We're going to be throughout the year giving away some watches. He did send me a uh, discount code for 20% off. It is WIN, W-I-N, spring, like, uh, like the... Uh, the time of year when spring will get you 20% off watches at winfieldwatch.com. Cool. So they, anybody can go use that code. Yep. It's right there. Use it. Um, awesome. if, if you have some issues or anything, send an email to the ROAP, I believe. Yes. Rifles uh, only accuracy podcast email. Yep. ROAP at rifles only.com. Yep. Send us an email if something doesn't work out and we'll get it fixed for you. Very cool. Can we move into it? <laughs> Let's go. All right. I'm going to start doing with the training section of this. Like I've got some stuff at the end of this that I really want to get to. So I'm going to try to move through this pretty quick. Uh, we already covered the fundamentals of marksmanship and we can remember those natural point of aim, sight, picture, breathing, trigger control, and follow through. One of the things that comes up though, is if you come out here to do a match, or even if you come training here, what's going to happen is I'm going to put you in positions and I'm going to position you to where your fundamentals are going to be compromised because what you need to do is you need to be able to understand, okay, I'm not going to be able to get a perfect natural point of aim on this thing. Hell, I might not even be able to get a really good sight picture. You could have debris in your way. And in order to make the shot with the rifle, you have to compromise some of those fundamentals of marksmanship. And you need to be adept at being able to do that. I always call it indexing and trading. And so what I want to do is I want to index on the best I can do with my fundamentals and then trade off what I can't. I lost my hearing. Uh, I know I'm still being recorded. <clears throat> it's back. So at any rate, as we go through that, and I always ask my students, I said, well, what is a time? Give me a time when your trigger control can be compromised. We all know what trigger control is. Proper application of the trigger is manipulation of the trigger without disturbing the lay of the sights. And so whenever I think what could cause me to get piss poor trigger control and I, you know, I get a lot of different answers, but the one that comes to mind with me is cold weather. Um, if y'all know during the, the uh, brawl down here, we had the ice apocalypse here at rifles only and it was extremely cold and i know that a lot of people were having their hands inside gloves and then when it came time for their time to shoot they would pull those gloves off so that they could feel their fingers a little bit better i can guarantee you they weren't feeling them all because i was wearing all kinds of clothes and my fingers felt frozen for seven days so 
If that is the case, and I know I'm cold out here, I need to be able to take that other fundamentals, the other ones, natural point of aim, sight picture, breathing, and follow through. And I need to make sure that they are absolutely spot on so that I will not screw that up. I know I'm going to be weak in my trigger control. So let the other legs of that table take up the slack. Uh, Another one, uh, natural point of aim. Okay, y'all have been out here. Y'all have trained with me. Some of you, you come to a competition. There's uh, an event that we called under the table. And it's basically turning yourself into a pretzel and being able to still hit your target at roughly 400 yards away. So you know your natural point of aim is going to be screwed up. That is the time that your breathing has to be perfect. Your trigger control has to be perfect. And your follow through has to be perfect. You can't let those things go by the wayside just because something starts to go wrong. Ideally, we say it in training, you got to run all the fundamentals for every shot. That works really, really good until you lay down and you try to get into a prone position and all you see is grass or some sort of terrain feature that you can't shoot over. Okay. So now we got to go and we're going to go and lean off this tree over here. Okay. Well, I can get up there and I can get on that tree, but in order for me to get the height that I need, I'm not really straight behind my gun. It's not really necessarily into my shoulder pocket. When those things start to go wrong, figure out what fundamentals you can use to make your best shot that you can. It's never going to be easy. It's not supposed to be easy. If it was easy, the Girl Scouts would be doing it. Wait, the Girl Scouts are doing it. So y'all should feel bad about that. Y'all should also know that Allison Zane, 15 years old, over the weekend just whipped the shit out of 135% professional shooters. That makes her third national level two-day match win. She is making some boys cry, and I could not be prouder of her. But anyway, that's what it is about indexing and trading. When something goes wrong, figure out what you can do to still complete your job. And it could be anything. You could be doing this for a living. You could be out hunting. Uh, I would really hate to draw that tag in Northern New Mexico or somewhere in Colorado for a really good elk and say, man, my, I can't feel my fingers. I'm not going to take this shot. And, you know, I'm looking at an elk that's 180 yards away. And I, you know, I like those targets because they're really big and they're really close. So it makes me feel better about my shooting. But again, I'm going to figure out how to make that work. And you have to do that too. And you got to decide on how to how you can make it work. You got anything to add on that, Dave? Uh, just one thing, because it comes up a lot. Uh, it seems like most of the guys I run into either have very little or no instruction. You know, they, they learned how to shoot. They grew up, uh, you know, shooting. So it's very important. You, you may have great fundamentals. You may not. But if you don't know what the fundamentals of marksmanship are, if you can't just list them off at the top of your head or at least the general idea of them, if you don't know those fundamentals, then you don't know which one to compromise and not to compromise. So keep in mind that, you know, whether it's, you know, online training through rivals only or a few others, snipers hide, whether it's in person with uh, training, snipers hide, rivals only, any of the, those guys, you really, if you don't know what those fundamentals are, then you can't, you don't know how to index or trade. That's exactly right. And that's the thing too. You can, you can practice this on your own as well. It's like, I've already already said, I took out the 22 and you know, just it's such an unforgiving little rifle, you know, shooting it at 50 yards and I'm driving on my fundamentals and then the bullets just are stacking in. And I say, okay, well, I'm going to start screwing up the fundamentals and see what happens. As soon as you do it, as soon as you start to screw up the fundamentals, it comes out. Now, granted, we don't shoot groups for a living, you know, that's for bench rest, but you have to shoot groups in order to test your fundamentals best done at 200 yards with a center fire or, you know, 50 yards with a rim fire, whatever you decide that's going to be up to you but as you're moving through that screw up some of those fundamentals so you can see it yourself and then maybe maybe be one of those things maybe it wouldn't be such a a bad idea to let's go on a 200 yard run real quick and then get up there and say that we got compromised breathing and see what happens with that one just so that you'll know what'll happen because i guarantee you we're going to have a little bit of movement in the matches from now on Uh, we got away from that it's coming back and so indexing and trading is going to become real real important yeah jacob just drug me through uh several 
stages this morning, and it's going to get interesting. Yeah, it is. It is. It's going to be really good. Anything else on that? No, I think think about covered it. All right, cool. All right, I want to cover a couple of things that came in, a couple of questions that we had. Um, and this one, I'm not going to call the people's names, although uh, some of them are former students of mine. Uh, I, I'll just leave their names out of it. But one is how much pressure do I hold the rifle into my shoulder pocket? And how much pressure should my face have on the comb? Uh, how much pressure? And it's like the it's like the the answer to every question that ever comes up is it depends. Yeah. Okay. So a really good rule of thumb is pressure into your shoulder pocket, figure weight of rifle. Okay. Now, if everything is ideal, it's weight of rifle. But if I go up and I'm having to shoot off of uh, something to where, you know, we've, we've already myth- busted the myth, you know, don't never shoot hard to hard. You know, okay, well, you don't really need that bag. So if you're going to have to shoot off something that's pretty stot, uh, steady, concrete uh, over a tree limb, what I'll typically do is I'll increase that back pressure by about 30%. Not because it's going to make me be more accurate, but what it's going to do is help me control the vibration of the gun. The vibration is going to go somewhere. The gun's going to act like a tuning fork. It's going to try to bounce up a little bit. And when it does, I just want to control that. Not for my accuracy, but so I can see where my shot went through my optic. I need to be able to see that every single time. Why? If I hit it, I need to know that I hit it. If I missed it, I need to be able to read the reticle just like a ruler so I can make the correction just like any other thing. And I have found... That if I am going hard to hard like that, I can go ahead and pull back just a little bit more pressure and it'll control that vibration. Dirt, not a big deal. Just weight of rifle. Uh, barricade would be another good example. If you're going to barricade and you're throwing a bag up there or you've wadded up your shirt or something and put it on there, that's fine. You know, just I, the pressure would be the same. Your mileage may vary. My question or my question to you is. Can you go out and practice this on your own to see what's going to work for you? If I'm over here and I've got a guy that's, uh, you know, 6'5 and 280 pounds, solid muscle, he's going to shoot that gun a little bit different than I will just because we have different body types or if you got a, you know, just people are built different. So the way they operate is going to be a little bit different. It doesn't mean that one's right or wrong. There's plenty of ways to skin a cat, but that is just a good rule of thumb that you can start off with. Uh, Another guy come in, I, I know him quite well. He said... He's really, really up to speed on centerfire ammunition and the quality of it, but 22, 22 ammo, it's kind of got him at a loss. Uh, I resemble that remark. Dave, I'm going to let you take that one. Um, it's I hate to be this way, but it's kind of the same answer I give everybody in centerfire. If a capstone slash Lapua burger and all that make it, uh, buy it. It's going to be good. So any your Lapua... Lapua also does SK, so you have Lapua Center X is uh, the, kind of the, it's not the low end, it's pretty nice, but it's their lower end on the Lapua side, and then you go up to Biathlon, uh, Midas, and all the way up to Exact, I believe, which it, that can start getting a little bit more expensive, at least compared to 22 ammo. On the SK side, uh, SK Standard Plus, then you have SK Match, FK Rifle, SK Pistol, there's a lot of different ones. However, uh, it also does depend on your gun. This is one of the reasons that I tell people, uh, well, full disclosure, I shoot for Team Voodoo. But I've used their rifles long before that, so that's out of the way. The reason I like a Voodoo a lot is they cut their chamber. Unless you ask for something different, they cut their chamber. It's called their Ravage Chamber, and it's based uh, around uh, Lapua ammo. So for PRA, again, context, keep it in mind. I'm not talking about bench rate. That's a whole different world. You're going to be measuring rims, and that's crazy. But for PRS-type stuff, practical field matches, if you buy a Voodoo, and you pick up SK Standard Plus pretty much any lot, unless something's, if, if 
if it doesn't shoot well enough for you to go win a match, then get with Voodoo and they'll make it right. I promise you. I've been using SK Standard Plus. I think that's what Jacob's using in his yep, right now. I am. And I have not seen a Voodoo that would not shoot that well enough, any lot, uh, to go win a match. What am I giving up if I go with the cheaper ammo? Well, it depends. Uh, like everything else. There we go. It depends. If And I don't want to talk about any other brands negatively because there's a lot of great action. So I'll just say if if the chamber is a match chamber or a little bit tighter, you may have some feeding issues. Uh, say your CCI standard stuff, you know, your green tag ammo, it's what, two, three cents around. Well, pre, uh, pre crazy uh, price uh, gouging stuff. It's a couple cents around. You may have some feeding issues. You're definitely going to be given up there uh, if you have a match type chamber. Uh, you're the, anything less than say, you know, Ely and all that is equivalent to, to Lapu and all that. I just, it's just, uh, just a different brand. Anything lower than that, you, you could be giving up, uh, you know, obviously you might give up some accuracy. You might give up some, uh, your speed, uh, your ES or whatnot might be going a little bit crazy. But the biggest thing I see, uh, well, the compromise is, so if you're using a match chamber, you might have some issues feeding. Well, then the other flip side of that is you use a chamber that is uh, not a match chamber and it feeds that cheaper ammo well. Well, now it's not going to shoot as well because it's not a match chamber. So you're going to, like anything else, uh, you know, you get what you pay for. And that's, again, that's why I like the, the Voodoo stuff is it's already cut around uh, a brand of ammunition. Uh, the, cool, man. The other, uh, if you don't mind, uh, go, go ahead. The, we didn't... Uh, we talked about rear pressure, and I think he asked. I just want to make sure we cover the question. I think he asked about comb, how much uh, cheek pressure oh, yeah. to put. Yeah, go ahead. Um, again, like we said, it depends. Uh, I base it on how long I'm going to be on the rifle. If I'm just throwing it up on a barricade, uh, I like to keep my head as uh, straight up or as erect as possible. I use higher rings, and I don't have a lot of pressure on the comb because I don't mind that for two minutes, my neck, the muscles in my neck, I don't mind that they're, they're holding up the weight of my head. However, if you're a hunter, if you work behind a rifle and for whatever reason you have to be on that rifle, if you don't have a spotter, you don't have a, a pair of binos, like you have to be on that rifle for a long period of time. Well, you obviously have to, uh, you're going to have to rest the weight of your head on that rifle because you're going to be on it a long time. You can't just sit there for an hour with uh, using the muscles in your neck, holding up your head. So you're going to have the entire weight mostly of your, your head on the comb. And then you have a choice to make if you can think about it when it's time to make that shot are you going to take the weight back off of it or are you going to leave the weight on the rifle? And then you have to worry about your recoil management. Your head's going to be trying to push that rifle uh, down and away from you. If you're a right-handed shooter and you're leaning your head over to the right, it's going to be pushing the rear of the rifle down and to the right, which is going to push your muzzle up and to the left. So again, it depends. I'd put as little uh, pressure as is needed for the situation. So if it's off a barricade or for a couple of minutes, uh, I put very little on it. If I'm going to be sitting there staring at waiting on a two legged or four legged, uh, uh, target, uh, and I'm going to be sitting there for an hour. Well, I got to put, um, the entire weight on my, got to rest your head on it. Otherwise yeah. you'll die. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. I hear you. I hear you. All right. That next one came in. Uh, this one came in as how to evaluate the wobble and how to improve it. And also talking about the heartbeat. Um, well, here's the thing. I'm assuming that we're talking about wobble, either sling supported or an alternate position where we're just supporting off a barricade or some other sort of uh, natural feature or unnatural feature, whatever it mm -hmm. may be. Well, the wobble is one of those things that uh, is pretty strange. And I think we've talked about it in, in, in a podcast past. But what I want to do is I just don't want to be afraid of that wobble at all, because the way I'm going to solve that is I'm going to solve it with my natural point of aim. 
And it's like what I do if I go up and my intended aiming point, I'm going to talk about shooting a steel target, a steel target at 400 yards. So my intended aiming point and my intended hit point is going to be right in the center of that steel target. So what I'll do is I'll evaluate where is the center of that steel target. Okay. Where is the center of the steel target in relation to the center of my wobble? What I want to do is I want to co-locate those things. I want to make sure that my wobble, I've got equal air all the way around it. And once I do that, I just going to get to the bottom of my breathing cycle and pull the trigger. Cause we know when we dry fire our rifles, we get that little, you know, dry fire and we see that reticle jump. Well, what the rifle's doing is it's telling you where it's naturally aligned and you can use that to your advantage whenever you're inside that wobble. Now, the more time that you spend up on there, it's just like brushing your teeth with your right hand versus your left hand. You got to build neural pathways in your head. And the more time that you spend on those positions, whether it's sling supported or whether you're shooting off of some sort of barricade, the more time you spend doing that, the stronger you're going to make those neural pathways in your head. And the next thing you know, if you go out and practice and are diligent about practicing, the next thing you know, all of your wobble will be inside your target. And the next thing you know, your wobble is going to be almost imperceptible. Uh, a really good example of that is Regina Milkovich. I mean, whenever people argue with her all the time, what about your wobble? She goes, well, I just don't have any wobble. All right. Well, the girl spent freaking ten thousands and thousands of hours out there just dry firing off of these different uh, positions. And so her wobble is so small now that it's almost imperceptible to her. Well, then it just becomes a win call. All right. So it, it's a win call for her. And y'all know she does really well with that. So again, <laughs> If you start talking about the heartbeat, that heartbeat is going to be there. It's a problem. You can stop it with a knife, but it only works one time. So we need to come out with something else. And so what you need to do is maybe try a different position of the buttstock into your shoulder pocket. If people say, okay, this is where my buttstock goes and this is where it's going to go from now until the end of time. Well, yeah, in that situation, but what about when this happens? You know, it's like, it's always gets kind of strange. We go out and we zero our guns wearing t-shirts and then the next thing you know, it, it's cold. And so now we have a jacket on and then we have a different kind of job. So now we're wearing armor and I guarantee you the guys that are wearing armor, the buttstock is not in a consistent place in their shoulder pocket all of the time you know it's going to change depending on what they're doing and you know what they're pretty effective at it so i'm not really going to argue with them but you can use that same sort of deal for you if you're getting that heartbeat in there and you're seeing it pretty heavy you probably need to move that buttstock and it really doesn't take much you can just move it a little bit the other part where you're going to start to see the heartbeat is if you're just using sling supported because you're going to wrap that thing against your bicep as tight as you possibly can uh and my recommendation on that is practice it a lot getting into it and out of it in a big hurry so you don't have to go to where you start to build up that lactic acid and you start to see those things but at any rate that's just that's just part of it the main thing is build the neural pathways to where you can reduce your wobble more and more and more to where it finally becomes almost imperceptible and uh it, that's not that is not uh undoable you know it's not something that you know is just not possible it is possible believe me so they don't we're not teaching the snipers how to shoot between heartbeats because uh, no. no we're not doing no. that no wow. no no and you know I, I don't know i don't know about that i mean it's online <laughs> yeah, it's on the yeah. internet yeah i don't know about that all right next one i thought this was a pretty interesting question guy comes in he says well and i'm shooting off barricades and they're a medium height and then at the end of it he says he's got some problems there and how to be more stable and at the end of it he tells me that he's six feet seven inches tall and I said, yeah. okay, well, yeah. medium height for you is going to be, I'm going to need a, I'm going to need a milk crate to yeah. stand Get on. Get shorter. Yeah. I'm going to need a milk crate to stand on for that, but it's a valid question. And 
One of the main, main things that you need to think, and you asked specifically about barricades, okay? Whenever you come up to a barricade and you're going to have one of those positions, the lower height, if you can, all, and you say you didn't have a problem, you know, if you can take that kneeling position, do a reverse kneeling. If you're a right-handed shooter, pick up your right knee, see if you can rest your elbow on it. If you can't, then see if you can keep your uh, torso straight. But the next thing is whenever you get into that low standing, and I think that's pretty much what we're talking about. And people screw this up because they've got a standing shot here. So they'll go up there, rest their rifle, and they'll blade to the target. So what happens there is we've got plenty of forward and back stability because we've got a really good barricade. But what we don't have is we don't have side-to-side stability because our feet are in a row. Out here in South Texas, if you're on a barricade and you're standing like that, the wind's going to blow you around. You're like a sailboat mm-hmm. out there. So the main thing to do is square up to your target. Square up to it. Point your toes at it. Your hips should be square to it. And give yourself feet pretty wide apart and then you'll have to bend down your knees just enough to take care of it if you it's again it's going to go back to that same wobble question this is about neural pathways and teaching your muscles what they need to do in these alternate positions like this the more you do it the better it gets the problem is People, whenever, and I, I'm not saying that you specifically did this, sir, but what people do is they go out and they spend, you know, X amount of money on this gun and X amount of money on this scope and X amount of money on this. And so whenever they go to the range, even though they have the option to do that, they want to go and shoot little tiny groups to justify the money that they just spent. The rifle is tough. Throw it up on the barricade and beat the shit out of it. Practice. Get to where you've got those neural pathways going through your body. Your body knows what to do. Crunch up your muscles a little bit. I don't have the correct answer on this. Maybe one foot should be two inches forward of the next foot, as long as you're still square to the target. Maybe it should try that other foot. There's gonna you're gonna find a sweet spot for you that's gonna accommodate your massive height, and you're picking up more wind that way too. So, again. Um, just practice it. Uh, David, you got something to add on that one? Oh, uh, the only, well, uh, going back, uh, cause it's all tied in the wobble. Uh, you, let me know if you agree with me or not. What I tell people when they ask is, uh, and this is off of a, a stable barricade, not some, you know, thing you put together with a couple nails and it's wobbling all over the place, but a stable barricade, or if you throw the bag on your shooting bench or whatever, if it's stable, uh, you should still be able to stay inside and shoot inside of an MOA at 100 yards if you're practicing. And there's there's no reason you shouldn't be able to do that. You're Like he said, and I, I know it sounds crazy to say your, your wobbles, you won't see it. But once you get good enough and get locked in and driving that rifle, you're going to have a 0.1 wobble or less. You won't be able to see it. As far as uh, getting... Uh, the different heights, um, again, like he said, you, this is a pretty tall boy, but in general, you're going to have to mess with it. What I will say is a couple things is make sure whatever you're doing, you want to slightly bend your knees. Like if anybody's been in the military or anything, you, you don't want to straighten your knees out. You'll start cutting off blood flow. However, so you just want a little bit of bend in your knee, but you don't want enough to where you're uh, using your muscles. You still want your bone support. So what you're going to do, and you still have to bend down, is whatever you do, do not start bending those knees. Is spread your. Uh, st- I usually start by spreading my base, my feet as wide as I can. If you're, you know, you know, into yoga, you can downward dog or something. You know, <laughs> do a split and have at it, John Claw Van Damme. It. And uh, I, if anybody remembers, Chuck that, Morris was better off the two airplanes. <laughs> and uh, so if you could do that, go for it. Get, but as soon as your feet get as wide as they can go. Now you want to start backing away from the uh, the barricade. Maybe you bring your feet together. Maybe they stay out there and uh, as wide as you can get them. But you start backing away from the barricade, and that will lower. So you've you've done two things to lower your yourself. You've uh, spread your legs. Now you're backing away, and you can use those. Figure out what works best for you. Maybe you start backing away first, but whatever. You use those two methods. Now once you once you get to where you cannot move any further back and you can't get your feet uh, any further apart, that is the key to, again, don't bend your knees. Now it's time to go to a single or a double kneeling. Like he said, use the reverse kneeling. If you can get your 
elbow onto your knee, uh, that's great. A lot of times, me uh, personally, I for whatever reason, my body type, a lot of times I have trouble. I can't, there's there's gap in there. If you're going to use a bag or a jacket or a, or a pack, then that works. However, uh, I see a lot of times people think, it, we always say what I think Jacob says, uh, always and never. We yeah. don't ever want to talk about that. So I see a lot of people, I, I've seen people when they're not doing a reverse kneeling and people are like, oh, you should be doing a reverse kneeling. Well, only for me personally, only if you can get your elbow back there. If you watch uh, anybody uh, track uh, basketball, anybody, if uh, we usually use our support side to take off. So I'm right-handed. I'm usually going to be using my left foot to jump, to take off and everything. So if I cannot get my uh, knee on my right, I'm sorry, my uh, elbow on my right knee, I actually put my right knee down because it's easier for me to get up and move faster off of my left foot. If that makes sense. Yeah. Just, just throwing tidbits out there, but yeah, don't, don't bend your knees and, you know, use a, a combination of spreading your feet and moving away from the barricade. Awesome. Awesome. I think we beat that horse today. Oh yeah. All right. Well, cool. On to the good stuff. We have some guests. We have one call in guest and a couple of guests, three guests here in the, in the house with us. Uh, two of them are from a major law enforcement agency up on the East coast. We haven't really convinced they're shy. They won't really, really want to talk yet. Then we got another guy uh, over here with us, Alex. He's um, retiring out of army special operations. And then a good friend of mine, Charlie, he's calling in. And uh, I just wanted to uh, welcome you guys here. Hey, thanks for having me on the uh, podcast here, Jacob. We appreciate it. Yeah, you're an interesting person. I said I was going to say how I met you. And um, it was uh, at a military class going on Monday, but it was Sunday. So I went up to Kingsville to have breakfast. And so there's this guy underneath the, the overpass and he's got a he's got a, a you know shopping cart with uh, all the shit in it. And I said, hey, man, I need a I need a staple gun driver this week. And he said, OK, I'll go and hop in. I still have the shopping cart, too, if you want it. That, that was a really good spot. <laughs> that was a good spot. <laughs> but, I don't know if you know if there's anybody manning it right now. I, I don't think anybody's there, man. I think I think they're holding it for you. Yeah, you know, getting out of the army and all. So. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, he came out here and he spent a, a week with some military guys here. And the next thing I know. He calls me and says, hey, guess what? I'm a Green Beret. I said, what? He says, yeah, I'm a Green Beret. And so he spent his time in there. And uh, it's just really good to see you again. Uh, it's really good having you here. Um, we've been friends for a long time. And, and thanks for coming down. And thanks for being on. Yeah, yeah calling in. That was That's awesome that you got some time off over there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, um, you know, Jacob's done a lot for me. Uh, get me on the right track there. And, uh, you know, he let me stay down here for about a, a year or so training up to leave. Um, I just uh, can't thank him enough for his generosity. And uh, yeah, it's good to, good to have you as a friend, Jacob. Yeah, that feeling's mutual. I want you to tell people, because this is going to feed into our match this coming up weekend, but I want you to tell people what you know about a minigun. All right, so the minigun is, uh, you know, a weapon system very near and dear to my heart. Um, I've seen the, uh, the minigun death blossom downrange, and it's impressive. It's good feeling to be on the right side of that. <laughs> Um, you know, the, the, the original General Electric minigun was a Vietnam era weapon system, mostly mm -hmm. an aerial platform. Um, it had a lot of potential then. Yeah. It wasn't the refined version that we see today. And it's kind of a cool story how it became what it is today. Um, Dylan, and it, I may get some of this wrong. I'm not a historian, but. Hey, before we get into that, <laughs> before, before you start getting into all that, I got to know, man, Jesse Ventura. Jesse Ventura. So in Predator. He's the real minigun guy. I yeah, mean, I mean, that, come on. Come on. This is what's important. <laughs> I don't want to say that it's impossible. There's some big boys out there for sure. And I think I saw an internet video where somebody was somewhat managing shooting a minigun handheld. Mm -hmm. um, but 
you know, what you're looking at there is some ridiculous recoil impulse around like 300 foot-pounds or something like that. It'd be like having a sort of a little jet motor in your hands pushing you back. So I you, saw the guy on the internet, though, with the two jets in his hand, and he's flying around. Have yeah, you seen that? He yeah. could probably do that with yeah. two miniguns if you had it. The other problem you run into is it comes in 1,500-round ammo cans that are about 120 pounds apiece. Uh, and then you're looking at... About 50, well, it's 50 rounds a second, 3,000 rounds a minute for most of your um, standard ground guns. Some of the aerial platforms have a high rate of 4,000 rounds a minute and 3,000. Um, so they conveniently left the ammo can off of Jesse in the movie. Well, what I saw, so I can't take a Ghostbusters pack of ammo around and, and walk around with a minigun. Unfortunately, no. Well, what are we doing here? Because yeah, it's, it's a sad state of <laughs> life's just not worth living anymore no no i've seen I mean, that i've now just like that once, kind of, that once kind i can of afford truth, it that kind of truth comes in and it hits you really hard and i'm gonna need a minute i'll let you talk first the heartbeats and now the, <laughs> yeah. the minigun Jesus. yeah exactly the good news is it's still a very uh, capable weapon system mounted to your you know your hilux or your mm-hmm. yeah whatever you got okay your Jeep. and your why rover. why do they call it a minigun is it because it's a little gal yeah, okay. so it's a it's a smaller version of the uh, I believe the, the name is M sixty A one Vulcan cannon. It's a twenty millimeter. Somebody correct me on that, but it's a twenty millimeter um, rotary, you know, Gatling gun style machine gun that that uh, you know aircraft have. Is that Air that's M60 the one that's in the A ten F twenty two? No, the A ten is an even bigger uh, rotary cannon. Oh really? It's the, uh, the thirty millimeter Gal eight, I think. Yeah. And I heard that, I don't know how much true it is, but I heard that they had the gun and then they built the plane to hold the gun. That's accurate. Okay. Also All right. something pretty impressive to see. Yeah. Uh, well, I was, I was at, at your home base in the back 40 um, over there doing some training with some, some guys, and uh, they were running the A-10s at night, yeah. and I got to actually hear the bird. <laughs> so that was kind of cool. Good sound. You can feel it. It's, yeah. It's, it's a comforting sound. <laughs> well, cool. Back to the minigun. <laughs> Yeah, so um, so you guys have something special coming down. Huh? Yeah, we do. Um, I guess if you went back all the way to where the original minigun. Yeah, the Gatlin gun. The Gatlin gun. So those of y'all guys, y'all probably need to know that um, this weekend at the 22 match, I have a friend that is actually bringing a Gatlin gun that is chambered in 22 long rifle. So bring an extra box of ammo, we'll load a mag, and you'll get to shoot it if you want. So how did that change from, from there? You just went, put all the electric motors on it. GE went nuts with it. And, you know, pretty much. Yes. Like yeah. that's kind of the cool thing about it is the, the general concept of it, the way there's a rotor inside of there and there's bolts with little cams on the bolts and then a cam pathway that's elliptical mm-hmm. around the housing. Mm-hmm. And that's what, you know, um, positions the bolts for feeding, chambering firing and unlocking okay is that cam pathway and the, the original gatling gun uses uh, a similar setup similar action okay give me a little bit more because you I, I interrupted you to talk about jesse ventura but you were getting ready to get into dylan yeah so um the original vietnam air guns the general electric guns were a little bit unreliable and um basically you had a guy a you know class three guy dylan had owned a general electric minigun wasn't happy with the performance so he developed the D-linker, which is a big key component that um, gives you the, you know, the reliable weapon system that we have today and ends up, you know, with DOD contracts for, you know, his upgraded minigun. And 
generally is just an enthusiast. Yeah. So they're more reliable now. Absolutely. Okay. And, um, you know, we have the, the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. Yep. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the biggest user of the minigun in the Department of Defense. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they're all rocking doing miniguns. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Well, what other questions did I have about the minigun? Yeah, well, I was, I was, they were all in my head before oh, the, you came. The other cool thing you get from having six barrels rotating like that, mm-hmm. you've got 3,000 rounds a minute. Yeah. Which on a normal barrel would be insane. Yeah, I mean, nuts. Melt the thing right off. Right. But divided by six there, well, quick math, yeah. you've got 500 rounds a minute per barrel. So it's actually shooting really slow per barrel. That makes sense. That's really slow for a machine gun. Yeah, as far as, as far as rate of fire for most machine guns. For a barrel, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for a barrel, that's really slow. So for like a 240, you're looking at like eight, 900 rounds a minute, mm-hmm. depending on your gas settings and whatnot. You know, that's blazing fast for a right. single barrel. But, uh, but 500 rounds a minute makes it really manageable, and it's also spinning, so it's cooling the barrel. So you can have really long strings of fire. Yeah. What's the longest string of fire you already did on one? Probably 20 seconds. 20 seconds. <laughs> and so that... That's that, still a lot of rounds. Yeah, that's, that's a still lot a lot of rounds, man. That's, do you yeah, gotta, we've had some fun with them. Yeah. Do you have to pick up the brass? Uh, that's the other kind of cool part about it is so you can hook like a dryer hose up to the ejection <laughs> port and put it straight into a barrel. Uh-huh. And um, just all your links of brass will go... Just falls into uh, the bucket. I need that right for the bolt gun. Yeah, we need this for a bolt gun. I got, an, I got a uh, product coming out for that. Yeah, so I, I think that's pretty cool, man. How much did you say the magazine weighs? So it comes in 1,500-round cans from the uh, ASP, okay. about 120, round, 120 pounds a can. Okay. And most, uh, you know, say like on a truck setup, you're looking at having about three to 9,000, 3,000 rounds, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, on the truck. I think most helicopters are carrying 4,000-round cans. Yeah. But they, they don't usually load them all the way up, so like 3,500 rounds. And, and the rate of fire is how many per minute? So for a standard gun, it's 3,000 rounds a minute, so you're looking about a minute of trigger time. So you're, yeah, you're not, yeah. Yeah. Um, it goes quick. Well, it's like I, we always talk about, you know, we're down here, we're, you know, precision rifle facility here, and, you know, go into the vault, and you got the 50 cals and the 338s, and... 338 Lapua, and then you got the 300 Win Mag and 308, and now it's like 6.5 and 6 millimeter, and now it's 22. And we think we're pretty badass with our guns, but our rifles. But I guess we're not that badass until it requires a forklift to put in the magazine. (laughs) (laughs) Then we're pretty badass. badass. (laughs) Well, cool. What about sights on them? So I've seen it set up a bunch of different ways, and I've set mine up different ways. there's some pretty big reflex sites out there that I think Insight makes, or I'm not sure who makes it, but it's a big EOTech. And it looks sweet on the minigun, but you end up not using it. Yeah. You end up just watching tracers, looking over the top of it. One of the walking cool it things in, about it was, is with that high of rate of fire, you can see your impacts really easily <laughs> yeah. and adjust. So yeah. you, you can believe the bullets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All yeah I'm going to put that on a t-shirt, All believe the bullet. Yeah. I put that on a t-shirt. I bet I could sell some of them. It's oh. in this case. Though, right? You're shooting 50 rounds a second. Yeah, so believe the bullets. Yeah. Believe the bullets. All yeah. 83 of them told yeah. me where to go. <laughs> yeah, so you end up looking over that stuff. Um, really high-powered lasers work really well on it. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a couple lasers that would burn a hole in a trash bag. Yeah. And um, those, those work pretty well on it. I can't get one of those at Walmart? Yeah, not yet. 
not yet. <laughs> not yet. Maybe Alibaba though. Alibaba, yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. That's with your Hilux. Yeah. yeah, with your Hilux. Uh, I, did, I don't know if I told you the Hilux story that uh, one of my students is a, a big wig in New York with Toyota. Oh, yeah. And so I called him up and I said, hey, man, I need a Hilux. He says, I'll call you back. So uh, Are he you calls you. Hilux? He called, no, this happened years ago. And so he calls me back and he goes, I have one for you. He says, it's fully loaded and it's $20,000. He says, all you got to do is go into Nuevo Laredo and pick it up <laughs> and put it on a trailer because you can't drive it in the U.S. You can only drive it on rifles only. I said, damn, there goes my Hilux streams right there. But I had one with my what name on it. What a bummer. Let it go. Did you guys see the Hilux meme that was going around through the years? I have to find that one later. It showed all the, just the versions of the Hilux. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's pretty good. We'll send it back and forth. Yeah, yeah. I figured yeah. you guys had seen that one. That, was, that evolution, that was a good one. You get pretty attached to your Hiluxes. Yeah. Yeah. You name them. <laughs> That's why I'm a proud CEO, don't I? Yeah. Because yeah. of the highlights. Well, I was working with the team at, at Fort Bragg one time. And so they they had one, you know, but it was armored. And so I was there for like a week. And so they let me drive it. And I thought that was pretty cool. I said, I'm driving around in this armored highlights. I thought it was a dog, but they had all this freaking armor put on the thing. So it wasn't, oh, yeah, it wasn't so real, the, the desert hauler like you see normally. <laughs> no. But this one was, you know, fully armored up. But it, it was pretty cool to be able to say, hey, I drove one. So it was kind of nice. Then I saw them in New Zealand too. That's that's like everything. Every other car on the road is a Hilux down there. You know, Australia is the same way. I love it because you can you can take the motor out and put it in the back, put sawdust in the gas tank. And yeah, and nobody cares. Yeah. It still works. <laughs> oh yeah, awesome. they do maintenance on them overseas. I mean, they drive them all across Africa with yeah. almost zero maintenance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Surprised those things run. You see me like. No roads, nothing. You haven't seen anybody for hours, and then oh, there's a Hilux. <laughs> <laughs> no road at all. None. None. Nah. Gotcha, gotcha. But if you do end up with one, you need to go ahead and spring for the minigun and put it in the back. Go ahead and put the minigun right. in the back. What does a minigun cost? So you're looking at like 160 to 180,000 for the system. Okay. Uh, I think that's what the government pays. Yeah. Um, you know, check again, check Alibaba. They have everything. Yeah. So maybe I can get a better deal. Better deal than a minigun from Alibaba. I mean, why have a Hilux if you don't have a minigun? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's a, they go together. Like Forrest said, with peas and carrots, same thing. Can you buy with Bitcoin. Yeah, a little Bitcoin. On the yeah. that'll right, work. That costs you one Bitcoin. Yeah. Apparently now. Well, I, you know, I, I have a, a little airplane, you know, and so. Oh yeah. Me and Lisa went out to Corpus one time, and they had a a C seventeen parked there for some reason, and I said, if I was actually lucky enough to own that, I could afford to taxi it to the end of the runway and taxi it back about once a year yeah. just for fuel costs. So that makes me to the ammo cost for the minigun. So I got a minigun, but it's not select fire. It only single fire. <laughs> That's the only way I, I can afford one, to shoot. I want, you do that actually. You just reach up there and turn, turn the barrels with your hand. Yeah. And that will shoot. Them. So you'll get one shot. One shot. One shot. Yeah. Fire you can tell people you can shoot my minigun. Yeah. Get ready. You know, to press the button. You're like, no, no. Hold on. Yeah. Just, just reach up there and turn the barrel. Yeah, you need a screw, a big flathead screwdriver. And yeah. Just rotate that over. That would be the only way I could afford to shoot one. Yeah. You shot it now. Great. One round per minute. That's yeah. That's what I got. That's that's a pretty good rate of fire. You know, for a precision rifle, rifle, it's not well, bad. It's not bad. It's not <laughs> not bad. I've gone faster. Oh well, a little. <laughs> well, that's cool, man. That's cool, man. Well, I appreciate you telling us about that. How about you, Alex? What are you up to these days? Well, first thanks for having me here, but uh, yeah. retiring and doing a lot of hunting. Yeah. Um, looking forward to a lot more hunts coming up. Yeah, you showed me the pictures of while we were sitting here. Yeah. It looked like you've been doing putting in some work. Well, it's just because I thought of it as you were telling the fundamentals uh, piece. 
of being cold because it was part of that Texas blizzard yeah. on the border of New Mexico. Uh-huh. And I was at an elevation like 7,000 feet. Yeah. I like to think I'm a decent shooter, mm-hmm. a little bit of experience. And then uh, everything you said is exactly what happened to me. I was shooting off a tripod. I was on rocks. I had cactus up my ass. Mm-hmm. I couldn't feel my fingers. Yeah. Things like 500 meters away. Right. And the only thing I could control was my breathing. Right. I couldn't feel the trigger or anything. Yeah. As you were explaining, I was like, that is really applicable to hunting. Oh, yeah. It was like 80 degrees two days prior. Right. And then a blizzard came in. Right. I had to go to Cabell's and buy like winter clothes and right. freezing. And I was tired. And I was like, all my fundamentals are out the window. Right. And as I'm sitting there, I'm talking about that float. That yeah. thing was like off to go to the next ridge, back down. <laughs> and then, like trying to steady that yeah. off a tripod, like while sitting and freezing. Yeah. It was like, it's just, it goes back to like, you really have to. If you're giving up a lot, you got to have at least one fundamental functioning. Yeah. For me, it was breathing. Yeah. So I could like slow down. Yeah. And that, you know, that uh, normally, you know, a shot like that would be nothing for you, yeah. you know, with not, without those conditions, you yeah. know, the, the, the cold environment and yeah. the range, you know, we go, I uh, just took Charlie to a range, uh, and Dan, that's long ago. And then we were shooting out to 1200 meters, mm-hmm. like off the same tripods, the same rifles, whatever. Right. but you know, you're calling, you're taking your time and you're doing all the right things. But now my heart rate's up. It's getting dark. Like all the all the elements are just against you, right. and you still got to pack the animal out and get out of there. And it's like Correct. my adrenaline was through the roof. Yeah, like your heart's beating and stuff. So that's when all that stuff really applies. Because anyway, sure. I think most people that shoot a lot can shoot pretty good on the range. Yeah, um, and they would keep applying for them. It doesn't think through it. But if you're going to apply to like hunting or real world operations, like man, you you fall back down. It's like the, the last couple of neural pathways that you've built over the years. Right. Hopefully those are built correctly. Hopefully they're strong. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, well, I've got a, a training video that. I use for the fundamentals of marksmanship. And I basically say right in the beginning of it, if you're just shooting 50, hundred or 200 yards, you really don't, I mean, you really don't need to pay attention to this, you know, exactly. but, but once you get out there you, and your, your targets get smaller and you get further away. And then now you talk about the, the cold. I, I went through that too. Yeah. I, we was here, we were on the range yeah. and it was just like, what do you mean you're taking three hours for lunch? Cause I'm going to go and warm the hell up and then yeah. we'll be back out here for a little while. But you know, I, I had it easy. I was on the range. You were out on the rocks. Yeah, I mean, I left my car pretty far back because, like, eventually I just got stuck going up the backside of the mountain. So I was walking through, like, knee-deep snow, following elk tracks, you know, just trying to get to it. Then when I got to it, I like, couldn't find it. Then I shot it. It was a couple bands down, and then I had to pretty much hump it back out through the snow. I was like, so I don't feel like my toes, my fingers were pretty much that whole excursion. Right. But, and getting there and just seeing where they were at, I got so excited. I was like, I lazed them. I was like, oh, 500 meters. That's not too bad. And then start unfolding my tripod and I realized that everything was shaking. Like <laughs> Sitting over here shaking like a leaf on a tree. Yeah, I go back almost like one popper because I was bouncing around so much and slowly right. start creeping in. I was like, I was like, man. And at this point, it's like I had to fly out like the day after, so mm-hmm. at the end of the hunt. I just got there. I already wasted like a week. So I was like, I have to make this happen. Yeah. And I'm gonna spook them if I miss. So. Yeah. Like a lot of self-induced pressure and stress. Sure. <laughs> you and know, I just remember thinking like, how, how can I control it? Like anything in this moment. It was just my breathing. Yeah. Well, I will tell you on a previous podcast, me and David had talked about exactly. What I was getting ready to bring said. it up. Yeah. Exactly what he just exactly said. Exactly what you just said, because you know, driving the fundamentals when you're, you're on the last day and yeah. it's at last light yeah. and this is your last chance. And the only thing that you can truly count on to make that shot is the fundamentals. That's it. That's it. That's no, it. This and, was perfect. Cause was we were perfect. just talking yeah. about it and here we got, he's <laughs> sitting there talking and we were, we, I don't know if you guys listened, but what we talked about last time was, uh, I had a debate with somebody and they were talking about using your time on a match and all that. And, but they, they kept referencing, well, I want to make, I want, I don't want to pull the trigger unless it's a perfect shot. And which is great. I try to do it every time, but you don't always get that shot. Just like this. It's the last day of your hunt. You're neck deep in snow. 
And, you know, are you going to go home, you know, hungry? Exactly what you just said. It, it, exactly. it was perfect. Yeah, you gave the story exactly. We gave a, a hypothetical example, and you just came in and said you were doing that at the end of February. So very cool. Very cool. Uh, and uh, I'll touch on just for a second, just because we like uh, making everybody happy. Uh, anybody that doesn't hunt a lot, doesn't work behind a rifle, and you only shoot competitions, there's nothing wrong with that again. But keep in mind, uh, if you want to test this out, like before you go build your hunting rig and you make uh, your trigger weight uh, the same as your competition gun, Take your hand, uh, fill your cooler up with ice water or just ice and stick your hand in there until you can't feel your finger and go practice with your six or eight ounce trigger. And see how uh, that works out for yeah, you. And I'm not saying don't use them. I'm not saying that I don't want to cause that much of a stir. I'm just saying that keep in mind your application before you go build a, a hunting rifle that mimics your competition rifle. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, cool. Well, Alex, Charlie, thank y'all for being on. I appreciate it. Uh, thank yeah, you. Thanks for having us. Really appreciate yeah. it. You guys got anything else that... It's on your mind. I'm happy to be here and shoot some stuff. Cool, man. Cool. We're, we're going to get on that pretty quick. All right, guys. Uh, keep in mind, if you have questions, uh, comments, concerns, anything, Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast has an email address, R-O-A-P at riflesonly.com. Uh, thank you guys for using it. Uh, if I didn't answer your question, send me another email and say, no, Jacob, dumbass, that wasn't what I was talking about. Uh, this is what I want answered because I might have I might have read it wrong. But all right, you guys take care. Hopefully we'll see you all this weekend at the match. If there's not an email calling Jacob a dumbass this week, I want to be really upset, guys. Me too, actually. <laughs> <laughs>